Welcome to Where I Come From, a new podcast dedicated to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatlin, and this week's guest is Carl Washington. He's the founder of one of the state's oldest and most successful boxing clubs. He's also one of North Omaha's most devoted caretakers. We talked about the history of North Omaha, his roots in the sport, his infamous sparring bout with Ron Stander, his memories of Bud Crawford, and why he devotes a wall in his gym to lost friends and fighters. And I remember when he hit me, because it felt like five people jumped out of me. I blocked bullets, I stepped in front of guys that were getting ready to shoot another guy. I would block him, tell the one guy to go home, and it got to the point where I went and got some insurance on me just in case something happened to me. I built everything here at this gym. I put the ceilings in, I put the lights in, I put the floor in, I put the bathrooms in, I redid the basement, I put the music studios in. This is where I come from. Carl Washington, thanks for thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's a it's an honor to have you. Uh, you just had a show on Saturday night, right? How'd you How'd you guys do? Uh, uh, we did pretty good. You know, I had approximately of my team, I had five boxing from our team. We had three wins. We were pretty satisfied with our guys what they did. You got a. You recently had a bunch of Asian Asian American fighters come well, to you, right? Well, I had a, a, a lot of Asian kids that wanted to start boxing. A lot of them are in soccer. And uh, my neighbor across the street uh, that lives from me, his name is Hene, he came over and he said he was interested in boxing. So he started boxing approximately maybe four months ago. And then he brought his brother in. Then his brother started boxing. And then his brother brought another young man in by the name of Ung, Ung Su. And Ung Su started boxing. Ung Su is like a coach. He still goes to high school, but he coaches soccer. And he brought in a lot of his soccer team. You know, they wanted to start boxing. And so I sat down and I started talking with him. And then I started working with him. And then pretty soon, um, uh, a young man called me from Monroe. He wanted to uh, get involved in boxing. Young Asian kid. Uh, he was from um, Korea. And when I went to pick him up, there were 14 more kids that wanted to join. They were all Asians. So I decided to uh, bring them all down because I usually pick up a lot of the new kids uh, to get them involved in boxing. So as we were riding in the van, one of the Asian kids told me that uh, they were having problems in Omaha because some of the kids didn't like them. And uh, I started talking to them, and then I started talking with the kids here. So... One of my main goals that I'm going to do now is try to bridge some uh, camaraderie with some of the kids uh, in that area because I would suspect that they're approximately between, I'd say, 52nd and Ames all the way up to approximately 72nd and Ames. You have a, a group of maybe 10,000 Asians that have just enveloped uh, the community, you know, so it's a, a real good hub of a, a lot of people that, you know, don't know about Omaha. They just knew to Omaha, and I'm going to be working with these young guys and working with some of the kids here to try to 
bridge those unknown territories, you know, because, you know, they're seeing a lot of the young kids that they've never seen before, and so they all got to try to basically get along. So that's going to be uh, have you year. Have you ever had Asian, Asian fighters in your club before? One or two at a time, you know, but I've but never, never 20. No, no but <laughs> what's so unusual, you know, when you have a young Asian come in, you know, uh, they can be, one could be, I thought maybe all of them were from Thailand, but they, they come from different areas. You know, I was surprised when they told me that they were from Korea and all different types of areas over there. You know, so we're talking about young Chinese kids, we're talking about uh, Taiwanese, we're talking about Vietnamese, and we're talking about Koreans, and it's a whole melting pot of uh, a lot of young kids, you know, and that we're going to, you know, try to bridge that gap right there you've been doing this for 40 years correct 40 years you're what 72 Se- 72 72 mm-hmm. years old mm-hmm. let's go all the way back to the start uh you're you grew up without a dad right you're, you're correct uh mm-hmm. you, you were born in the mid 40s mm-hmm. uh where'd you where were you born uh, omaha nebraska no but, but what uh, where'd you grow up what neighborhood uh well we grew up at first we were on uh 20 2658 Lake Street. That's where my grandmother and mother uh, owned the house. And then <clears throat> then we moved to the area of 19th and Benny. And uh, I stayed there until I was approximately, after I graduated from high school. As soon as I graduated from high school, I married my childhood sweetheart that I was with when I was 15, 14. We got married well, I snuck and got married. Well, we, we got married young. And then uh, we moved to 26 and Benny. But this was all before any kind of problems. Yeah, anything, so you know. so this is an era, um, the 50s and early 60s, where it was a different time in, in oh, North, yeah. North Omaha. Mm-hmm. What, what are your memories of, of that neighborhood at that time? <clears throat> well, when I was a kid growing up, okay, when we fought on the street, you know, we could get out and say, for instance, if I, me and the guy didn't like one another, we, we had a problem at school and we decided we wanted to fight that evening. We'd meet, stand on the corner, take our shirts off, fight. We say, "Hey, wait a minute, hold on, I'm tired." He say, "He's tired," <laughs> so we go sit down, and he look round, at me. Round two. Yeah, he look at me. He say, "You ready to go again?" I say, "Yeah." So we get up, we box again to fight. You know. And then after a while, we, you know, both of us are tired, and the <clears throat> only thing we talked about was who got the better lick, you know, who got the better punch, you know. So, and then at school, they would say Carl got the better punch or so and so got the better punch. That's what, that's the way it was back then. You know, we would fight, and no one would even think, no guns whatsoever were ever, ever pulled out until I would probably say, I remember it well. There was a young man by the name of Dennis Miller. He was killed on 24th and Parker in front of the Legion Hall. He had gotten a fight with an older guy. Dennis, I think, was 19 years old. And he got in a fight with a 32-year-old guy. And the guy had just got out of the penitentiary. But what happened was Dennis wanted to fight him. And the older guy didn't want to fight. The older guy pulled out a gun and shot him, killed him right then and there, you know. And that was the. And then the the other night, the next night, there was two other. I think the hill a hill brother, 
and got killed on 24th and Sprague. So this was the beginning of people pulling out guns. That that changed the whole the whole thing about people out. You know, I mean, people. You know, at that particular time, you had a gun. It was almost you know, you think you thought those people were Al Capone back then, you know, so, you know, not everybody had a gun, you know, but these guys came out and introduced the guns in the neighborhood, so. This is an era when, this is, you know, in a lot of ways, it's <coughs> it's before air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I mean, people just hang out outside. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, people mm-hmm. are walking around outside, they're mm-hmm. sitting on their porches. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a community. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are... Are, we knew are, are active in community. People are are watching each other's kids. We knew everybody. Knew everybody, mm-hmm. and then pretty suddenly in the late sixties, early seventies, mm-hmm. it shifts. Yeah. Well, what happened was some of the guys that had went to the penitentiary for petty things and they got out, couldn't get a job, probably mad at the world. I'm looking at the two individuals that did the first shooting that I know. You know, uh, they wanted to be more or less known as a badass. You know, and uh, I don't even know what happened to him, you know, so. When did you start to see the drug culture start? I would probably say during the Vietnam, Vietnam when guys were coming back from, Viet, uh, from Vietnam, uh, I'd probably say that's when I kind of, like, noticed it because of family members. Some, some of my family members were in the service when they got back they were changed completely, you know, I mean, mentally, uh, morally, and, and everything else. They completely changed, you know, and I guess they were introduced to a lot of things that they hadn't been introduced to here, you know. So that's when I started noticing the change about the drugs. But back then, I guess it was either weed or heroin or some of those pills, something called reds or whatever, all that New stuff back then. That's when I noticed the change. You were uh, you were a pretty good fighter <laughs> on the street. Yeah, yeah. On and you street. were a big guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I back then when you're young and you're more aggressive, you know, I, I did, you know, I didn't pick fights, but I didn't walk away from fights, you know. So when did, how did you become? Uh, how did you get into the fundamentals and the technical side of it because you you had a pretty good amateur career in the late 60s and early 70s right uh just a so-so career what what happened with me uh um, are you going to tell the ron standard story now oh (laughs) how'd you know that one i'm gonna ask you about it (laughs) how'd you know that one oh that one's Mm -hmm. that one's somewhat Mm -hmm. legendary oh for real i didn't know that no no no, a lot of people knew about that i don't mean to embarrass you but i am gonna ask you about it because it's a good story oh yeah well, we're actually, Ron and I are real, real good friends. You know, this event that I did last night was is actually a tribute to him. Uh, the the Ramble Rumble is actually uh, started because he wanted me to work with him with Holy Name and said, can I come and put on some boxing events? And I said, you know, sure, because I, I started uh, Dickie Ryan. Uh, Dickie Ryan had his first boxing match with me at the Zodiac Motorcycle Club, and Dickie was a well-known heavyweight, and I said, yeah, you know, I helped Dickie with his first uh, boxing match and then his first amateur show we did at Holy Name, and I said, yeah, you know, no problem. You know, I would, you know, do that for you because I was always a, a booster for Ron Stander. I was the first one that started um, 
uh, touting him, you know, always celebrate Ronnie because he fought for a world champion and fought for a world championship, and he's carried himself very well over the years. You know, he's a lovable guy. If you meet him, you're going to fall in love with him because he's just that type of guy. He's a jokester. He's a, he's, he's a all-around super good guy, you know. But how I met him was I, I'm going to go get a picture first. All right. Okay. <clears throat> this is my nephew. His name is Howard Stevenson. Uh, that's my brother's son. Uh, when I got married, he, he got a little upset because I always was his, more or less like his big brother. I'd always kind of look out for him on the street. You know, anytime he got into an argument, he could run up to my house to come get me. I remember one time some guys was picking on him at the pool hall. <clears throat> and so he came up to my house crying, told me that a guy named Peter had uh, hit him upside the head at the pool hall. You know, so I uh, jumped in the car and we went back to the pool hall. And all the guys in the pool hall were standing in there. They were all grinning. So I, I cleared out the pool hall, you know, so I, you know, so. Really? Yeah, so I, and then uh, I, I had him stand on the pool table, and I said, anybody ever mess with this young man going to deal with me? You know, that happened a number of times. I always would go and protect this young man, you know, because his dad wasn't around at the time, and I was the one looking out for him. And I was working at the, the bakery, and when someone called, and this was when Wallace uh, had came into town and they did that. Uh, George Wallace, 1968. Yeah, they did that uh, thing downtown, and Butch was out on the streets, and I guess people had already had came through the neighborhood and broke through the broke windows out and everything, and so Butch came out and he seen a lot of stuff laying on the ground, and he started picking up stuff in front of the pawn shop, and he was shot by uh, an officer that was inside and, and killed, you know. So when they called me, you know, <clears throat> instantly I, I didn't believe it, you know, because, you know, when someone said, you know, Butch was shot, you know, something in the mind tells you that it didn't happen. You know, it just, I just, you know, you just instantly not believe it, you know. You no, know, that didn't happen, you know. Somebody called me lying. But anyway, found out later when we went down there to see him, and I looked at his body, and, uh, you know, I, it, it put something in my mind, you know. So then at that particular time, I turned into instant hate, you know. And then not only that, back then you could have your phones, you know, your phones was always listed in the, the, the telephone book. And some reporters came down and asked me what I thought about it, and I told them I thought it was wrong, and blah, blah, this, and then his stepdad got on TV and was saying some. well, he shouldn't have been out there doing this, and and then me and his stepdad got into a, a beef about that, what he said, and then we were diluged by thousands of phone calls saying that's what he gets. He should have been, I mean, I mean, we had, we had so many phone calls that came in talking about, yes, that that's good what happened to him, blah, 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 this, and blah, 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 that, you know, so. Now, now Carl, this is, this is March 1968. Mm -hmm. uh, George Wallace comes in to speak. He's mm -hmm. running for president. Mm -hmm. uh, stirs unrest mm -hmm. on 24th Street. Correct. Uh, and there's 
there's a few days of riots and mm-hmm. um, well, this was the beginning. Well, yeah. this was the beginning when uh, he got shot. You know, so and then I, I had a completely different attitude. You know, uh, you know after all that. You know, so what? How did it change you? The response to that. I was mad. I was mad. I was just mad, just mad, you know, just mad for no good reason. Just just mad because I, I certain witnesses had told me that he was shot and drug inside the building. You know, some people that said that he wasn't climbing in the building. Some people said he was gathering up the watches and stuff that had fell on on the ground and uh the officer went and shot him over that, you know, not climbing in the building, so and with all those uh, disputes, you know, it, it said something in my mind, you know. So I decided, you know, well, then my brother-in-law asked me, uh, did I want to just go relieve some pressure and go to the gym? And so at that particular time, he knew about the Swedish auditorium. So I said, yeah, I'll go to the gym. So I went into the gym and started working on the bags. I met a guy by the name of... Leonard Hawkins at the time, he was a coach down there. So I started coming into the gym and working out. I was a pretty big guy. I think I was about, that time I was about 220, something like that. And I think Muhammad Ali had just lost his title or something, you know. And I said, well, maybe I should just go on and start boxing and become a heavyweight champion of the world, you know. In your mind, that's what you think. You know, new guys, the boxing figure, you're going to come in and beat everybody up, become a heavyweight champion. So your interest in boxing was came out of the 68 riot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Basically, yes. Directly? Well, yes. And then when, after I tell you this, how it all evolved, then you'll see it, you know, it okay. kind of plays out. So then, you know, he's looking around the gym and everybody was paying attention to this one kid over there. You know, they was t- wiping him down with a towel, catering him, and uh, and just, you know, he was treating him like a little god over there, you know. And I said, what's up, what's up with all that, you know? And they said, well, that's Ronnie, you know. So I said, oh, okay, that's Ronnie, huh? Okay, so he'd be, they give him his water, wipe him down. And I said, okay, you know. Everybody in the gym was just saying, oh, that's Ronnie, you know. So I said, oh, okay. I'm gonna have to whoop Ronnie, <laughs> you know. I said I'm gonna have to whoop Ronnie. Yeah, I said if I, you know, if I, my short way to become a champion, I guess I'm gonna have to whoop Ronnie, you know. So, if I'm not mistaken, he had a coach by the name of Djaco Djagamo or DJ or whatever it was, you know. So I told the coach, I said, you know, um, I don't think your boy's that good. I, I'll go in there and whoop him. He said, No, you ain't ready for him. I told Hawk, I said, Hawk, I want to spoil that kid. Hawk said, no, you're not ready yet, Carl. I said, no. I said, I want to spar that kid. I know I can whip him. You know? Hawk said, well, you come in tomorrow. Yeah, I'll, we'll, I'll let you work. We, you guys can work. So I said, okay. That's when I decided to call all my friends up and say, hey, I want you all to come to the gym and watch me annihilate this this kid. I said, just come on. You know. So I took my entourage to the gym, marched up the steps, at that particular time, um, uh, Joe Swiebeck used to let me in the gym early so I could work out early, you know. Yeah. So anyway, I took all my guys into the gym, and, we, you know, they sat around, and I, I changed my clothes real quick, 
got got in there, even gloved myself, helped glove myself, and then told everybody to glove me, you know, because I wanted to respect that he got over there, so they gloved me. Right. Yeah, you know, so Ronnie just looked at me. He probably doesn't even remember this to this day, that, that sparring session, but I do. But uh, he looked at me, and I said, come on, come on. And, you know, so Ronnie was taking his time, putting his gloves on, and he took a sip of water, then he got into the ring, and I said, yeah, it's, it's time now, it's ready. I said, ding. So I, you know, went out and started shadow boxing in front of him, you know. Then I moved around, and I hit him with a jab, you know, and then I looked at my friend's ass. I knew this guy was slow. So so I hit him again with a jab, you know. And it, that's when you kind of really... When you're boxing, you know if you have an effect on somebody, you know. The jab? Yeah. But, if, you know, if you hit him with a jab and he and right in the eyes and he doesn't blink, you know, then that means you're not hitting him hard enough or you didn't make him, you know, shudder or blink or do anything, you know. So I, I hit him with, with another jab and then he just yawned. And then, <laughs> uh, then all of a sudden he hit me. And I remember when he hit me, because it felt like five people jumped out of him, you know. And I said, never been hit like that in my life, you know. And then all my friends started going, oh. they, uh, yeah, you know. They ducked their heads. Yeah, yeah. So then I said, well, let me hit him, start hitting him faster and faster. So I started trying to jab him real faster, and then he caught me with another one, you know. And I felt his power. And it made me think, well, do I really want this, you know? So <laughs> I did I did like every boxer that come through this gym wants to get out of that ring, but they do. I said, I hurt my shoulder. <laughs> I, I hurt my shoulder. I can't spar anymore. And Leonard said, no, no, we're still going to party. You're going to still stay in there. And so Ronnie came at me again. I said, no, I hurt my shoulder. Take these damn gloves off of me. <laughs> so... I pulled the gloves off, you know, jumped out of the ring, and uh, Ronnie came back in the back, and uh, I was mad at myself, you know. Ronnie came back, he said, you know, you're not bad. You got a big mouth, but you're not bad, you know. And so we talked a little bit back in the back of the Swedish auditorium, and, and at that particular time, he reminded me of Elvis Presley, you know. So we talked, and... And as we talked, you know, I got to know him, and and we became, you know, fairly good friends, you know, so. How much longer did you fight? I fought about a year after that, and that's about it. I mean, you, I read somewhere you, you had a, you were 20 and 0 as an amateur? Yeah, that's about it, until I met uh, Morris Jackson, you know, so Morris uh, more or less ended my boxing career, you know, so. Yeah. He beat you? Yeah, Morris Jackson. Yeah, he, he, he beat me and beat me soundly. And then we just gave an award to a guy that I, I lost to. His name was uh, Tony Novak. But the reason I lost, back in the days, uh, you had to have a cup. And I got in the ring without a cup. And so they, not like these here, but it was, it was just that little cup you had to put in your, your you know, your yeah. in your underwear. And I didn't have you know, the type of underwear that would keep the cup in. I had the, the baggy, you know, underwear. So I put the cup in, <laughs> and I stepped out, and the cup dropped, you know. So the referee said, one more time, one more time that cup fall out, 
it's over with. And so I got the cup, I put it in, I tried to go out, try to keep it in there, and we we got to mixing it up, and I, as soon as I opened my legs, the cup fell out again. He picked the cup up and said, it's over with, get out, you know. So I was, you know, so I just... Carl, Carl what, what changed, what made you want to do this? I mean, we're sitting <clears> in your gym right now. You've <clears> been <throat> in this gym for, you've been in this location for how many years? Since 1993 in this one. Okay, so 25 years. And before mm. that, you had 15 years in other gyms. Well, then I was, for two years, I was at 551 South 18th Street. Uh, we, uh, Governor War found a gym for us for that. And before that, we were at the South Omaha Projects, in the middle of the projects on the outside, because we had got kicked out of the Fontenelle Pavilion. We was at the Fontenelle Pavilion for 10 years. But when P.J. Morgan came in and they wanted to renovate the gym, they only wanted one organization in there, so they kicked us out. But for 10 years, we were at the Fontenelle Pavilion. Before that, two years, we were in my basement, you know, so. Yeah, so, so I, I want to get to that in a second. But, but what made you decide, I want to do this? Like, I want to teach, I want to coach boxing. Well, his, his brother... His name was Stevie Johnson. You're talking about yeah, uh, Howard. Yeah, my other, talking about my, Howard. Yeah, my other nephew. He came up and he brought another kid by the name of Courtney Kellogg over to my house, and he said, "Carl, we want to box." This we is wanna... the mid to late seventies. Nineteen seventy-eight. Yeah, nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, approximately March of nineteen seventy-eight. Said, "Carl, we want to box." You know. Uh, they had went down to Snooky's. They said, we don't like Snooky because Snooky does this here. We want to box. So I said, okay. Okay, I'll train you. So I took him downstairs in the basement, and I started uh, working with him on the, uh, the mitts and the bag. And so, you know, then I'd say after a couple of months, we went to the, uh, the armory over off of... Um, not Center Street, but I forgot. I think it might be Center Street, the the, the armory, the National Guard armory. So I took Courtney and uh, Stevie Johnson over there, and uh, there was their first fight. And we fought some kids that had 30 fights. You know, you, you know they, back then, if you, you know, they seen that you had new green guys. Everybody wanted to fight your green guys. So. <laughs> so, but I took Courtney and Stevie Johnson both over there, and... They annihilated their opponents, you know. And then we came back. We put the trophies on uh, the porch. And then uh, Lavelle Wright, Sherman Wright, and then uh, Courtney's brother, Billy, Rodney Reed, Albert Evans, Terry Evans, Michael Suggs, Kevin Suggs, the little kid, and Kenny Mitchell, all the little kids that lived around me. I remember them because I know the houses that they came from. They all came over, and they wanted to uh, all box. They know. saw the trophies. Mm-hmm. They saw the trophies. So then we, 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 I started training them. We had about 16 guys. So at that particular time, we, I, then we used to travel with families. So we went to, I, th- I think, I'm trying to think of the city. It's um, out on Highway 92. Uh, yeah, Wahoo. Wahoo. Yeah, Wahoo. Okay. We went to Wahoo. It was one of our first uh, places that we went out to. So at first when we walked in, it was like a, a little auditorium up there, and you walked through, and 
it's almost like a big auditorium, but people don't see you until you came out on the floor, you know. So when we first walked in there, we were, this was my first venture of really feeling that people didn't really like you back then, you know. So they they pelted us with a lot of pop, popcorn and all that kind of stuff, you know, and threw stuff at the boxers and booed us. And my boxers they yeah, and the family members ran back out and got in the car. And I said, no, we're not going to leave. I said, what we're going to do, we're going to go in here like soldiers. We're going to box. We're going to get in the car, and then we're going to leave. You know, so all 16 of our guys, you know, we got in there. I had them all, you know, glove up. That night, we won all 16 bouts by first-round decisions. Really? And when we left the place, you could hear a pin drop, you know. And then all the coaches said, I, you know, I had, these guys were experienced. They fought, they had to fought or somewhere else, you know, but that, it's impossible because, you know, we, they were, all of our guys were new, you know, so that was the first time that we uh, got some type of recognition. The the height of your club was, was in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. During those years when we won all the team champions. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. so you had a whole run of, of uh, <coughs> silver gloves champions, which mm-hmm. is ten to fifteen year olds. Mm-hmm. Uh, golden gloves champions. Mm-hmm. Um, who, Silver gloves, uh, national uh, junior Olympics, uh, uh, a little bit of everything. At the at the height, how many how many boxers did you have? At the height, probably at one particular time, I would probably say in my basement. At that particular time, I had a box to maybe 200 kids. 200 uh, kids in your basement? Well, how I would do it was... Uh, <laughs> I'm I sure would, your wife was thrilled. By oh, she, she, she loved it. And not only that, we started the musical program also. You know, when the, the boxers weren't there, we had uh, kids on uh, cans and uh, do a little bit of everything. What I would do is I would have the kids come in, they would change in the backyard... I'd have them do jumper jacks, and then I'd have them loosen up. Then I told everybody to run to Carter Lake and back. You know, so by the time I knew, everybody wasn't going to make it at the same time. You know, so the the fastest ones would get back early, so I would have them work in the bag, and then I'd have them sparring, and then they would be done. You know, so as they came back in, they worked the bag, sparring, and, you know, and done. So... And then some of them came back so tired they couldn't do anything. You know, they just laid in the yard. You know, so. And your day yeah. job at this mm-hmm. time, you were you were uh, you were a welder at this time, right? <laughs> yeah, I was a welder when I worked at Inland Manufacturing Company. Or were you doing radio at this time? Because you did uh, radio. Uh... After Inland Manufacturing, I was a manager of KBWH Radio and part owner of KBWH Radio. And so you're doing this boxing thing kind of on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, the manager of the radio station. But one of the things about which helped the boxing, it was um, Dan Langfield, who owned uh, Inland Manufacturing, and uh, Henry Ogram. He used to be a big supporter of the Boys Club. I remember I used to go in and talk with Henry Ogram on a regular basis and Dan Langfield. You would probably say were my these guys were my mentors, you know, because they would tell me how to handle the business part of it and how to handle people and 
uh, I would almost every Sunday I would either be with one of those guys because they wanted me just to sit and listen to them. And now I realize how they were mentoring me mentally because I paid a lot of attention to a lot of things that they said, you know. So, And they were supporters of the club. Like uh, Dad Langfeld flew my team to Pontiac, Michigan. Henry Ogram, you know, he would always make donations available for us to travel. And um, he had a nephew by the name of Jim Whitmore who was very instrumental in talking to Henry anytime we needed anything. And that support, because of the employers that I had, and they bought my outfits for the club, is what really helped us get off the ground. Mm. You know, without that support, I probably... It probably would have been rough or tough. I probably wouldn't have, you know, wanted to try to do all what I had to do without that initial help, you know, and them showing me how to do it and keep doing it, you know, mentally is something that I would say passed on to me because of Dan Langfield, Henry Ogram, and some of these other people. You know, they showed me how to go out and ask for donations, how to be sincere make sure that, you know, I I did what I was supposed to do and stay righteous with it, you know, so. You've seen it all in, in mm-hmm. this community, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and boxing has been kind of, has been your thing, has been your calling card, but it hasn't mm-hmm. been your only thing. You've also been, mm-hmm. you know, real active uh, mm-hmm. in, in gang prevention. Correct. Uh, you've been been a radio man you started a hotline in the 80s an anti Correct. like an in- intervention hotline mm-hmm. for to keep kids off the streets yes uh-huh. uh it's it's really kind of run the gamut how mm-hmm. do you you see the need you know you just don't jump into those things you know like for instance how i got involved in the gang issue uh way back when we were at the Fontenelle pavilion we had three individuals coming to the gym, and they wanted to control the gym. You know, these were, uh, I guess, Crips way back then. You know, they, they came in. They were from California, and, th- I mean, they were real boisterous. They came in because they had a beef with one of the, our boxers, you know, so uh, the kid wanted to fight him, you know, and he, so we invited the kid to get into the ring. So the kid jumped in the ring, and I guess he thought he was going to, you know, whoop the boxer, you know, but it it didn't turn out that way, (laughs) you know. But uh, the kid wound up joining uh, the club and leaving the gang. And so I said, hmm, okay. So that's how I got involved in intervention. So, and we put on a music uh, talent show one day. It was at the Hilltop, uh, up at the Hilltop, uh, up on, uh, we used to call it Green Hill back then. It was the hilltop um, uh, where they play basketball. We put a talent show on up there. And this was the first gang fight in Omaha. So I went outside and I tried to break it up. And when I was breaking up the fight, I was hearing little clicks like that. This happened during the talent show? It was supposed to happen during the talent show? Yeah, well, they started fighting inside. Then I got everybody outside and everybody was going home. And I was talking to some kids and I heard this clicking noise. And, and I didn't particularly know exactly what it was, but when I looked around, I seen all the vehicles around me had holes in it, you know. And someone was shooting up at the, the brick wall up there, shoot, trying to shoot at the guy that I was talking to. 
And I found the guy that was doing the shooting the next day. I went over to his house, and I started chewing him out, and uh, we started talking, and I got involved with him and his group, and I, I was persistent in working with him and and got him kind of like turned around, and he was pretty well known back at that time, so even... Um, Peter Jennings came and did an interview with that young man, and the young man used to brag about what he used to do in gangs, and then I got mad at the young man because the <clears throat> reporter reported everything that this guy said, but he was just spouting out stuff that wasn't true, but he was trying to make himself look vicious on there, but that wound up on TV, it wound up in the, the news media, it wound up in the Wall Street Journal and all that crazy stuff, but... The kid had it took the kid twenty years to live that interview down. Really? Mm -hmm. So let's the, let's be honest here. It's a it's a little bit of a minor miracle that you, <clears throat> that you're alive, right? Mm -hmm. With oh, yeah. with all the things that you've tried to do. Mm -hmm. Well, in a sense, though. But you know, I the wife always tells me, you know, we have faith in some someone has a plan for you because I've blocked bullets, I've stepped in front of guys that was getting ready to shoot another guy. I uh, would block him, tell the one guy to go home and stand in front of a gun. and all. It got to the point where I went and got some insurance on me just in case something happened to him. This was back in the 80s when I was younger. <laughs> but would I do it now? No. <laughs> no. But that back then I had a passion, you know, because uh, I had a grandson that, uh, not a grandson, I had my uh, brother's son that was didn't make it. He was—he only was 15 years old when he was uh, killed on the street. So, I—I I, I had a. When you're younger, you have more of a passion, and you—you you go after a lot of things that I wouldn't do now, that I did then. You know, so. And you kind of had the ultimate credibility in the community, mm -hmm. right? Because, oh yeah. Because of the club. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah, the club, and I would—if I would see a fight on the street, I'd—I'd I'd be the one to go out there and grab both guys. You know, and no one. Had, has ever swung on me at, the, at that particular time. Because you could fight them back or because you were disrespected well, or both? I, I think a little bit of the, more respect than anything else. If I would snatch like a, a heavyweight that I seen fighting on the street, you know, and he was doing real well, you know, I said, hey, you know, you throwing pretty good punches out there. You know, you need to be in the gym. <laughs> he turn around and look at me and say, you think so? I said, yeah, come on in the gym. I recruited a lot of young men that way, and some of them became Midwest Golden Globe champions, you know. Um, I, I'd probably say out of uh, the 40 or 50 fights I stopped off of the streets, I'd probably say 30 of them jumped in the ring. Really? Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them are doing very well now, you know, so... Uh, I mean, some of them are doing exceptionally well now as far as still in the boxing, still coaching, and still doing some things, you know. If I would say that, you know, that guy used to be a vice lord, they'd probably be laughing. When I mention vice lord and he sees this on here, he's going to say, Carl, 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 you know. So, But uh, there were some guys that used to be in gangs that are doing exceptionally well, working with kids that turn their life around, and they've turned thousands around. So some of the individuals that I pulled out of the, streets are doing the same thing that I did, you know, and they're a lot younger. And they're third generation also, so 
it's, it's, it's you know, what goes around comes around. You've seen, you've seen tougher days in North Omaha <coughs> than right now, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I the, the 80s were probably the toughest. I'd probably say the, 80s, was it the 60s? And 80s and 90s, in front of my house alone, where I live at, right directly in my house, I had a young man killed. He was shot. No, he was, he was shot about maybe 300 feet from my house. He ran down to my house, dropped in front of my house. We went out. We called the ambulance. We went out there. And, you know, I picked him up and was holding him. And he started quivering like a, a chicken, and he, you know, he, he passed right there. That was one time. And then another time, two guys was running up past my house and got shot at the house next door. Two individuals were shot there and killed. And then across the street from my house, was, there was used to be a vacant lot, but they have some more houses in there now. There was another guy that was shot and killed right there. And then about around 500 feet up from my house, there was a young little kid by the name of Dooney that used to stand on the corner. He stood on that corner from the age of 8 till he was 16. Uh, he was not doing what he was supposed to be doing, but uh, a car drove by, got out, chased him around the house, and killed him. Shot him five times, you know, there. So just in my neighborhood alone, but I worked with some good, successful gang unit people we worked on that neighborhood anytime anybody got in the neighborhood <clears throat> that we knew wasn't doing good we'd be on them <clears throat> so we consistently got individuals out of the neighborhood through the help of i would probably say dedicated police officers and people in the community that you know we we pinpointed certain areas where, where was your house it was in off of the 33rd Names area. Okay. That used to be the, the hottest place yet. And then another area was down on 19th Street. We did a lot of intense intervention down there, and we cleaned up that area. I'd probably say right after Dooney was killed, we made a good effort. And anybody that moved in the neighborhood, anybody that, that came and partied all night, threw up gang signs, claimed to... to claimed the neighborhood, we worked on trying to get them out of there. And we were pretty successful. So right now we have probably, <clears throat> through the habitat houses that came up through there and through the uh, the guys, people in the neighborhood that know one another, probably have one of the safest neighborhoods in the city now. You know, you so. still live in the same house? Same house. Same house for since 1970. Really? Mm-hmm. hmm Yep. Now, Carl, mm-hmm. y- your, your father died when you were four. Mm-hmm. Um, how did he die? He died of uh, cancer. He died of uh, stomach cancer. You know. So you, so you grew up without, mm-hmm. without a, a father figure in the house anyway. What two strong females? My mother and my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So and and you get into the sixties and seventies, and I mean you're you're basically becoming a father figure to mm-hmm. hundreds of kids in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what inspired you to do that? Well, when I started seeing that I could change some people's lives around, when I seen that I could, uh, you know, when we won a lot of trophies and, you know, family members saying thanks for directing my son, 
into boxing. I got some guys that are with me, uh, like, say, for instance, Brian McIntyre, uh, Bo Mack, who's uh, Crawford's uh, manager. You know, I started him when he was 10 years old, you know, and to this day he keeps thanking me. And some guys, you know, they, when I was working with these guys when they were younger, you know, they looked up to me. You know, I mean, they, you got a lot of little guys looking up to you and they could go on that wrong path and, you know, you kept them in the, the right path, you know, so it, it just kept me doing some of the things that I, you know, I just kept doing it, you know. I see I could turn somebody's life around. You just keep doing it, you know, and just turn one, two, and then it got to three, four, five, and then it got into the thousands, and then it got into the tens of thousands, and then the wife kept telling me, you know, God had a plan for you, you know, it's not, he always saying it's not you. He said, God had the plan for you because a lot of times, you know, I shouldn't have been here. You know, uh, one time, uh, which sticks in our, our mind real a lot, we were going to Fremont to a silver, no, it was um, uh, uh, that, yeah, Silver Gloves. We were going to Fremont. We bought, a old, we bought a bus, and the bus was running real nice. You know, I mean, perfect bus, you know. And that morning when we, I started it up, it kept acting like it was choking out. You know, it just wouldn't go. It just barely would go. Something was wrong with the carburetor. But, you know, we still, everybody still hopped in the bus and we was going to Fremont. And if it wasn't for that bus choking out, it was, a, as you go out this one highway, I think it's 36, there's a, a light that you have to go pass as you go to one of those last lights on highway 35 the traffic goes this way you know i forgot where it's at but anyway the the, the bus was choking out and we were going across this the intersection and a semi truck came out of the out of nowhere and passed in front of us and i say missed us about four feet he, he ran the red light the guy was asleep but if it wasn't for that, he would have got everybody in the, you know, so the wife always keeps saying that we, you know, we've been covered by divine whatever, you know. So a lot of things happen that, you know, that says that we're on the right path, we're doing the right things. And Who's the best fighter you ever you ever coached? <clears throat> there, there's so many of them. That, that, you got to pick, you got to pick two. If I had to pick two... Uh, if I had to pick two, I would probably, when we say best, it would say, uh, it would, to me, it would be coachable, not ability. <laughs> of course. Yeah, it would be coachable, not ability, and, and keeping the spirit of boxing and, and continuing it and probably want to do the legacy and keep I'd, I'd probably say if I had to look at overall my picks of, of boxing would probably be the Wright brothers because all throughout from the age of nine to ten when they got out of boxing they call almost every month they come down they coach They've been a part of uh, the club for the 40 years 
that I've been here. So if I had to mention anything about my favorite fighters would be the Wright brothers, LaBelle mm. and Sherman. Mm. You, um, in doing some research on you for this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, I went through our World Herald archives, mm-hmm. and the theme in looking up old references to you in World Herald stories mm-hmm. is that you so frequently speak in stories in which there's been violence, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a gang shooting, mm-hmm. um, somebody in prison. Mm-hmm. You've lost so many people in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you? How did you deal with that? How did you keep going? How did you? Well, you know, having a strong faith, and you know, just if you lose one, you want to try to protect as many other ones that you see that's heading down that same path. You know, I've not only lost them to death I've lost a lot of fighters to being stupid and doing the wrong thing you going know? to prison yeah going to prison you know doing a lot of stupid things and you know if you lose one you try to save you know figure out you can save someone else that's trying to do the same thing you know and those saying is don't let one monkey stop a show you know just try to help as many as possible I've seen boxers do stupid things you know some boxers that I probably wouldn't even help like for instance, uh, there was a guy fighting on the street, and his mother tried to break a, break the fight up, and he turned around and, and hit his mother. You know, I had to turn away and just leave him alone. You know, and uh, years later he tried to apologize. You know, I said, you know, that's you just don't do crazy stuff like that. You know, even though you're mad at someone else and you turn around because your mother's trying to break you up, you hit her. You know, like you're hitting a, a individual on the street. You know, that's that's a no-no. You know, I like to make sure that everybody respects people. You know, I have a wall in there. Most of the people that have passed over the years, and some of them that died through violence and non-violence, that have a whole section in there, like Cleghorn. You know, I remember going to his funeral. His mother said, "I wish he never had a boxer. If he hadn't been that good, he." probably would be living today because two guys jumped on him and they they weren't winning. So one of them went home and got a gun and came back while he was fighting the other one and they shot him between the eyes, you know. So yeah, at one particular time I was going to a lot of funerals, you know. And so it, it got to the point where I just stopped going to funerals, you know. So Really? One of the main reasons I stopped going to a funeral funerals, I started seeing some of the preachers that would let gang members come in with uh, the same attire, blue or red, you know. The preachers would uh, leave them, you know, let them do that. They, they, I went to, I think one of my last ones, uh, they were all in blue. They had their cars in blue outside, the blue cars, and the casket was blue, and and I said, you know, all that stuff is what got got him killed, you know, and and so I just that affiliation I stayed away from. I just let it go. Carl, did, did boxing lose some of its significance, its impact in the community over the last fifteen, twenty years? 
I say when you have teams and coaches wouldn't get together. Yeah, I tried to have the coaches kind of merge and get together and try to be on the same page when all the clubs started going in their own direction, you know, uh, and doing their own thing and didn't want to bond together. That's helps, you know, dissipate some of the, the things, you know, we're, we're not all on the same page like soccer teams and, uh, basketball, uh, organizations, you know, like basketball organizations, they can have people build them big gymnasiums, like one in Council Bluffs, the other one's out there, and, and they're building them all over. But as far as boxing, uh, as far as gyms trying to get together, everybody is separate, you know, that's, and they don't want to promote it, you know, and, and they don't, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, some of the boxers that I have, some are doctors, some are policemen, a lot of lawyers, some are, you know, uh, I mean, I, I can probably leave out of here and go into any big place and find a boxer that boxed for me at one particular time. Really? I told I told someone, I said, I can go in that building, I'll bet you someone boxed for me, you know, at one particular time. I can go to MUD, OPPD, the city of Omaha, and find somebody that had boxed for me, you know, because uh, at one time I... I I gave the count up at about around 40,000 boxers. So, 40,000? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so over the years, yeah, you know, so I can I can, I can, can go to any big place and I can guarantee you I found someone that boxed for me. Or, like, for instance, if I was to, my car was to break down and I was to walk home, I said I would probably get about five blocks before someone would pick me up <laughs> you know, and, and take me home. It, it always happens, you know, so. Um. You, you know, there was concerns about the health of boxers, uh, the American boxing kind of declined there mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. MMA picked up mm -hmm. right next door to you. There's a CrossFit gym mm -hmm. uh, right here on 15th and Cass. Mm -hmm. Is it what describe the state of boxing right now? Well, I think it's good right now. I mean, as far as uh we we ensure that all every boxer is covered by insurance, and we don't have any injuries because every boxer has to be covered. If there are any injuries, they're covered by USA Boxing. And uh, the CrossFit gym, the reason why they moved next door is because I was here, and they said if I wasn't here, they wouldn't be there. Really? You know, so, and we get along with them real well. They don't want to box, but but they 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 like being in the area, you know. So. And, uh, but, uh, we, we get along pretty good, you know, so. Do you still get in the ring and show guys how to do it? Well, I got four coaches now and it's just to keep these doors open. I have to kind of like be out there on a regular basis and keeping the, the flow going. Fundraising you know, so, yeah. or, or recruiting? Yeah. Uh, recruiting and fundraising, you know, so like right now I'm calling my coaches up and letting them know how many headgear is missing, how many cups are missing. And make sure they turn in all the gear, you know, so. You had a fight Saturday night? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, has this place, you said 1993, we're coming up on 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really amazing to walk through here. It's it's like a shrine to your history. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got. I built everything here at this gym. I put the ceilings in. I put the lights in. I put the floor in. I put the bathrooms in. I redid the basement. I put the music studios in. At one particular time, it took me four and a half years because I had to tear out a lot of walls and stuff and uh, 
to remodel it. This is probably the third rendition. Did you ever think you'd see a fighter like Bud Crawford come through Omaha? Everybody knows that sooner or later it was going to happen because the ingredients of a Bud Crawford is we made sure that he went to all the, the tournaments, you know, the ringside, uh, the the PAL tournaments, the, all the different tournaments, just like some of the kids are doing right now. They're, they're going through what they have to do to get to that level, you know. But by him being exceptional, he's what you would call an elitist, uh, elite boxer. To get to the be an elite boxer, you have to go through all those things. And then also, he's a smart boxer. We have a lot of them coming up right now that's going through the same channels, you know. And everybody feels that they'll happen. happen. But I knew that it was going to happen. Um, when, did a, you, when did you first see him? Well, I first seen him when he was probably about four or five years old because his, his uncle boxed for me and his dad boxed for me and his uh, mother used to come, you know, over to the house. That's where they, his dad and his mama met over in my house because they lived right behind me, you know. So his dad boxed for me, and I, we boxed at the same time. as I boxed at the same time as his grandpa boxed, you know. So I knew him ever since he was little. I got pictures of his whole history in here. Oh, really? Yeah, so. This is, he was seven years old with that picture. And this is, this is his whole amateur career right through here. You got a whole wall devoted to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's him over there. Mm -hmm. That was him at a ringside tournament. He's won uh, a lot of ringside tournaments. There was a lot of guys that had the ability of him back in the days, like this here young man, Rosina Robles, he went into music, he was pretty good. This young man was real good. But, you know, getting out, oops, excuse me, getting out, doing the right things at the right time. When did you recognize he was something special? <clears throat> um, I say special, probably making it as, any boxer that makes it to the finals in the National Golden Gloves, you're special. And then plus he was ranked number Two, number one for two years in the United States. So he, he was already at the elite state, uh, status. Huh. And these are some of the individuals that died over the years. Even the young lady was shot and killed, 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 shot and killed. Suicide, shot and killed. Stabbed, shot and killed. Shot and killed. Hit by a car. And this is the history of our first fundraiser. These are some of the first guys that boxed for us back in the days. This was Ben Gray back in 1978 when we were doing it. This was my wife when we cleaned up the pavilion when we first went up there. These are some of the, the, the boxers. Is that in your house? Yeah, that was in my house there. And these are the Wright brothers right here. Carl, the the photos over here. Uh, why do you honor? Why do you spend so much space honoring those people? Because it's memories, you know. Because one person came in one day, and he said, "Do I know so and so?" I said, "Yeah." And he was amazed that I could probably name and remember where a kid lived at, you know, uh, like Courtney Lavelle. If I see a picture of a kid. You know, John Gators and David Van Camp, 
and some of these other guys that, you know, it's just still there, you know, so. How much longer do you want to do this? Um, in, until I can find someone that, that has a drive that I got, you know, and, and will work with people and will not, you know, they would treat people, you know, work with old people. I've noticed a lot of the young coaches don't like to really work with some of the old coaches because they don't think they move a lot, you know, so it, they're not ready. If you can't work with everybody, then you're not ready. If you can't work with a little kid that's jumping up and down, you get frustrated, you're not ready. If you can't deal with an old person, you're not ready. I took care of my grandmother until she was 103 years old. I started. I took care of her every single day from the age of 94 till 103. I bathed her, I washed her, I fed her, and I made sure she never went to a, uh, a nursing home. So you have to be able to get along with people and work with people. And until I see that individual that can work with everybody, old folks, uh, coaches, kids, and not have an attitude and still be friendly, you know, but still be stern, you know. Don't let people run over you, but just be a good and a caring person. Last thing, well, you've, you're often described as an activist. Mm-hmm. What does mm-hmm. activist mean to you? Well, someone that would probably not let things just uh, just be involved, be, just be involved in righteous things, you know, just in the right things, you know, just get your voice heard. Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. After we stopped recording, Carl Washington made two important comments that he'd like to include in this podcast. One... He was faster than the Sayers brothers growing up. Two, his wife Virginia of 52 years is his inspiration. You can check out our archives on omaha.com slash podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have ideas for guests, send them to Dirk.Chatelaine at owh.com.